Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The Bowery Boys episode 337. New York and the New Deal. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And in today's show, we are going to visit the 1930s. Um, that's right. Greg, insert nervous laughter here, because this podcast is headed straight into the Great Depression. Uh, Yeah, nervous laughter, I guess, Tom, because we are, of course, facing right now a very challenging year Mm -hmm. in 2020, everybody's favorite year, with the struggling economy that we're dealing with and a frightening rise in unemployment that some fear could turn into a replay of the Great Depression. But in 1933, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt chose to boldly take on this crisis that he and America was facing with a series of transformative actions by the federal government that became known as the New Deal. So over the next two shows, we'll be talking about New York City and the New Deal. Now, we obviously express a little favoritism in the framing of the subject uh, because that's what this show is about. But the New Deal, of course, would benefit the entire country. Some of the largest projects in the New Deal took place outside of New York City. But New York does play a very outsized role in the creation of the New Deal. Yeah, for one... Many of the architects of the New Deal actually came from New York City. Even Roosevelt himself had a townhouse here. That's right. But even more importantly, no other American city benefited more from the New Deal. And more specifically, back-to-work and employment programs like the Works Progress Administration. At one point, one out of every seven WPA dollars was being spent in New York City. And what is one reason for that? What is one very big reason for that? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we present Robert, Robert M- Moses. Moses. <laughs> Moses. 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 <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. M- Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia's New Parks Commissioner, uh, who started in 1934, went right to work using federal money to transform New York City not just the parks, but all sorts of major projects. In this episode, we'll describe how Robert Moses amassed a great amount of mostly unchecked power, power which would then be used in more devastating ways in later decades. But that power in particular here in the 1930s would revitalize the city and put hundreds of thousands of people back to work. Are you listening, city leaders? So join us as we take a dive into the story of Robert Moses and the New Deal. I was standing down in New York town one day Standing down in New York town one day I was standing down in New York town one day Singing hey, hey I was broke, I didn't have a dime 
I was broke, I didn't have a dime. Yes, sir, I was broke, I didn't have a dime. Singing, hey. So how do we even set up New York during the Great Depression? Uh, Well, with an editorial from the Daily News, of course, that I happen to have right here from 1932, which I'll I'll read in a second. But as a reminder, the the financial crisis known as the Great Depression, uh, which stretched throughout most of the 1930s, hit New York especially hard, creating scenes that really would have been unthinkable just years before. During the Depression, there were bread lines stretching down streets that had previously been bustling with shoppers. There were men and women, you know, pushing and shoving into employment agencies. And in city parks, New Yorkers who couldn't pay their rents and evicted from their apartments were setting up sort of makeshift shanty towns. The presence of this depression could be felt every day in the lives of New Yorkers. Yeah, and I've, I've got several articles here that appeared in the Daily News over um, a couple weeks in September of 1932. They were about hundreds of New Yorkers who lived around town in so-called Hoovervilles. They had been set up, these encampments had been set up along the rivers and then famously also in Central Park on the the filled-in site, the partially filled-in site of the old Croton Reservoir, which is mm-hmm. which is today's Great Lawn. So for weeks, this story played out in the press that there were these homeless New Yorkers, many of whom had been soldiers in World War One, who had been evicted. They had moved on to this land. They had erected shacks and and little makeshift homes, and they had been arrested, but then were finally allowed to stay. And there are just these dramatic photos that are almost surreal, you know, to see a line of shacks, you know, in Central Park stretching toward the ritzy apartment buildings that you see behind them. An editorial then that the Daily News ran on September 24th, 1932, uh, they said the news has published several pictures of Hoover City built there by 50 or so jobless people, houses made of packing cases, tar paper, and picked up bricks, and furnished in a way you'd never believe without having seen them. Property owners alongside Central Park have complained, and the buck is passing rapidly from department to department. The idea is to boot these poor men and poor women out of their haven on city property, which the city will not or cannot use for any other purpose. Though Central Park's neighborhood was once upon a time not too good to harbor various shanty towns, it's a little too tony nowadays to let these jobless people stay there with only enough police supervision to keep Hoover City sanitary and free from brawls. It's interesting because just a hundred years before, during the creation of Central Park, Mm -hmm. there had already been little shanty towns that the city then tore down to make the park. And so, in a way, now here they were popping up again in the park. And it's they're named Hooverville, of course, for the president at the time, Herbert Hoover, who had a very laissez-faire approach of how the government should handle these types of things in the economy. He was fiscally conservative. He thought the market would rebound and fix things. The 1920s had largely been defined as a period of incredible economic growth, the Roaring Twenties, and a period when everybody was getting into the game of the stock market and into speculation, which all came to a screeching halt in late October of 1929, when panic set in and speculators wanted out as quickly as possible, culminating in a series of terrible days, especially Black Tuesday, October 29th, 1929. And within one week, the stock market would lose $30 billion, which was um, an enormous amount, 10 times the amount of the annual federal budget. And in the years that followed, Hoover would take a very conservative approach to federal spending to fix the situation. Uh, To give you one example, on May 1st, 1930, so just a few months after the crash, he gave a speech to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce where he says, quote, I am now convinced we have now passed the worst. Mm. In the future is prosperity. So in other words, it is what it is. And by the way, all of this is while the country is still in prohibition and when people really could have used a drink. 
And here in New York and, and throughout the country, you know, cities, local economies were just decimated by the stock market crash because that also meant the loss of savings, the loss of banks, the loss of manufacturing. And the real human cost here is that families, whole families were losing their savings. They were being turned out of their apartments. They were going hungry. They were all out of work. And this was happening on such a large scale, like just not only here in New York, where it was truly devastating, but across the country. And it it had this cascading effect, because as unemployment would rise, then the demand would fall for goods and services. And so companies had lower revenues and laid off more employees. But what's of course, always odd about these situations, looking back at them, you know, right as Wall Street was crashing, right as everything was starting to come tumbling down. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, that very same month, you had construction beginning on the Empire State Building. (laughs) Yeah, October of 29. That's right. And uh, that project, of course, would employ thousands of people during the darkest days, uh, these dark early days of the Depression. But do remember that when the building would be completed and open on May 1st, 1931, less than half of the office spaces would be rented out. Unemployment in the U.S. uh, had gone from two and a half million in 1929 to eight million by 1931 and 13 million by 1932. That was 25% of the U.S. workforce. And to be clear, there were some organizations that were helping out here, that were going on the street and helping people, but they were completely overwhelmed. Yeah, the the city ran an employment agency on Lafayette, but by 1931, 5,000 people a day were lining up outside its doors. And they were willing to take anything, but there just there wasn't much to offer. And then what about food? Well, there was a hodgepodge, you know, a sort of patchwork of private and religious organizations that were trying to to feed people and to get them clothing and shelter. But they also were not equipped to handle something of this magnitude. For example, actually, to bring up somebody who we just did a podcast on, William Randolph Hearst operated multiple food kitchens throughout the city, including two at Times Square, one at the north side and one at the south side. Consider that on one day in January of 1931, 85,000 people in New York City lined up for meals at 81 locations around the city, mostly churches and at the Salvation Army. But the problem was just too big. By 1931, there were over a million men, women, and children in New York who were relying upon some kind of aid for food or shelter or clothing. Fortunately, I think many people would agree, 1932 was an election year. And the future of the United States would turn to New York State, and in particular to Hyde Park, home of the governor of New York, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And by 1932, how long had had Roosevelt been governor of New York? Well, for about the same amount of time as Hoover had been president. Although back in those days, the governor's terms were two years. So he was actually in his second term in 1932. And like Hoover, this financial crisis would almost immediately begin defining his national profile and his political career. During the, during the campaign, he really began promoting very bold ways of tackling these unprecedented events. And a lot of this was borrowed, actually, from state programs that he had been responsible and worked towards creating to help out his state. Now, on the campaign trail in May of 1932, he said, quote, The country needs, and unless I mistake its temper, the country demands bold, persistent experimentation. It is common sense to take a method and try it. If it fails, admit it frankly and try another. But above all, try something. So, so that's FDR encouraging Americans to think about a big solution as he's campaigning for president of the United States in 1932. Or as he would perhaps more eloquently say later, the only thing to fear is fear itself. And how did that election work out for him? Well, it was a landslide victory for Roosevelt, not surprisingly. 
he was a Democrat. And in addition, the Senate was then taken over by Democrats and the House was also controlled by Democrats. They won more seats. So essentially, he came into office with this extraordinary mandate from America to indeed try something new and something unprecedented. Now, he would bring many of his closest confidants with him, many who would influence Roosevelt's choices, those that would push him into making more ambitious decisions here. A few of those people, for instance, I'll just read a couple names. Frances Perkins, Mm. who was the Secretary of Labor and the first woman ever appointed to the cabinet. And she was known for her work in progressive reforms like fire safety in New York and minimum wage. And it was through her, Tom, that this Roosevelt would meet the most important figure in this story. And that's a man named Harry Hopkins, who would oversee many of these New Deal programs. What is key about Hopkins, Tom, and I think what's really extraordinary to the story is Hopkins' background is in the New York settlement house scene, Mm. particularly in the Lower East Side, and with a prominent settlement house called the Christadora House, which was near Tompkins Square Park. You know who also was involved in the settlement house in New York before arriving in D.C.? Was Eleanor Roosevelt, first lady. So there was this whole cadre of New Yorkers who were now in power who were progressively minded. Where do they even start? Well, he was inaugurated on March 4th, 1933, and really got to work immediately with so many new plans. We refer to these opening months as the first hundred days, okay? All capital letters, first hundred days, (laughs) for their profound impact on the American people. And I should add really quickly, by the end of 1933, prohibition is repealed. But within a month of being in office, like one of his first things that he does, he and the Congress amend the Volstead Act Mm -hmm. so that beer and wine uh, with an alcohol content of 3.2% could actually be sold. So he immediately got America drinking again. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he understood the, the value of that to the economy and, of course, on to ease people's minds, of course. I'm not going to get into the deep specifics here or else we'll just get lost in a sea of acronyms. But essentially, there are two new deals, okay? Okay. The, two sets of major programs. Okay, the first, which is in 1933 to about 35, are really repair and restore type of programs that were aimed at the financial sector, aimed at banks, and a quick creation of jobs for millions of Americans. And many of the projects that we will talk about here in this show actually begin with programs from this, quote, first New Deal. Mm -hmm. So he was shoring up the financial institutions and immediately stimulating job growth and putting people back to work. Just so quickly that it's extraordinary to see government working so efficiently. Really key here, actually, was the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, or FARA, throwing $500 million, or in today's money, $10 billion, into relief and infrastructure projects for cities and states. In many cases, funds in this FARA went to projects that had already started but had stalled during the Depression. So then would you say that Farah really turned on the faucet of federal funds, Greg? (laughs) It was an angel to the economy, (laughs) if you will. But by this time, though, in 1933, in the first hundred days, back in New York, the city had gone through a, a turbulent time in its own governance, because as you will recall, the the city's Roaring Twenties mayor... Jimmy Walker, who had been a playboy and who the city tolerated, you know, when times were good. By 1932, um, times had changed and the Walker administration had been completely consumed by scandals and was being investigated for all kinds of financial wrongdoings. And in late 32, he would be forced out of office. He'd even escape off to Europe. But the next year, in the election of 1933, the office of the mayor would be filled by another incredible figure to introduce into the story, Fiorello LaGuardia. (laughs) Who, by the way, had run against Walker in 1929 and lost in a big way. But he was 
well-regarded. He had, he had served many terms in Congress by this point um, in the 19-teens and throughout the 20s. He, he was a man who really connected with everyday New Yorkers. You know, he was half Jewish, mm-hmm. half Italian. Um, he cracked jokes and sang opera and shouted in Italian. He must have been a really fun guy to hang out with. S- mm-hmm. Small in stature, but really larger than life. And so when was he sworn into office? In January of 1934. And he had run on this vision, a big vision of rebuilding the city um, from the terrible state it was in. Because not only was the city ravaged by the Depression, um, as we've just talked about, but it was also physically run down due to the neglect of the Walker years. So LaGuardia had this plan to put thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers back to work. The only catch was that the city was broke and teetering on bankruptcy. There was simply no money for his big vision. Although, fortunately for Mayor LaGuardia, there were these early New Deal programs that Mm -hmm. had been created just the previous year that were, you know, kind of there to throw him a lifeline. And fortunately, Mayor LaGuardia also was a good friend of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. These two New Yorkers got each other. So we have these federal programs, which we'll, we'll talk a little bit more in depth in our second part, how they specifically relate to New York's job situation. But I do want to add that this is just a quote, first New Deal, and that there would be a second round of newer, kind of more powerful programs that were created in 1935 and 1936, perhaps most famously of all of these. I mean, there's so many, we're not going to go through the list, but perhaps most famously and most consequentially, the Social Security Act in April of 1935. I mean, keep in mind, there's not much of a social safety net here in the United States. Then a month later, after the Social Security Act, on May 6, 1935, the Works Progress Administration, or the WPA, was created um, with Harry Hopkins, who I mentioned earlier, in the lead role. This would succeed in folding in many of these national infrastructure projects that were already in progress and would fund thousands more and would put millions of people to work from all professions and in all walks of life. So we've got the New Deal. We've got the first New Deal, the second New Deal. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of crazy acronyms going on. (laughs) Many, many different programs here at work. So, yeah, so many, in fact, that they call it the alphabet soup because there's just, there's so numerous. And let's be honest, like, it's quite confusing, even for those who are well-versed in the New Deal. I fell into despair because I kept confusing my PWA from my WPA, Greg, you know? (laughs) The Public Works Administration was really financing large-scale infrastructure projects that could take many years, whereas the WPA, as you just said, really was an employment program intended Mm -hmm. to put millions of Americans back to work, even in the short term. Remember, Roosevelt kept thinking and hoping that the Depression would be over soon. So Mm -hmm. many of these WPA programs were like fixing up parks, fixing up schools, doing, you know, lots of road repair, sewage repair, like sidewalk repair, things that could be done quickly, that cities could apply for the funds, get the funding and put people to work immediately. And the WPA would then pay the salaries of those workers. Exactly. So let's get to the nuts and bolts here, Tom, of how this federal money comes to New York, uh, how it gets allotted to New York City. And, and Greg, there there were literally millions, billions of nuts and bolts oh, that's in these true. New Deal pro- <laughs> projects. So we really are getting down to the nuts and bolts here. But was LaGuardia literally going to D.C. himself to, to lobby the federal government for these funds? Yeah, he was flying down, sometimes back and forth before lunch. Um, meeting with the president sometimes, you know, a couple times a week, asking for new funds as they became available. But LaGuardia would have a secret weapon, or rather, a man who was a whiz at attracting federal funds, a parks commissioner who thought a lot bigger than just parks. 
And we'll get to Robert Moses and the New Deal in New York right after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Drum roll, please. Ladies and gentlemen, here in the story, we now present to you Robert Moses. So rewinding a few years, Moses had begun his career at the state level. He had worked with Governor Al Smith during the 1920s on reforming the New York state government, back when LaGuardia was in Congress and Jimmy Walker was mayor. And in that position, then, he had developed some of his parks and parkway projects out on Long Island, including massive Jones Beach, which opened in the summer of 1929 and welcomed an astonishing 25,000 visitors on its opening day and would soon be welcoming uh, three million people a year. And Jones Beach, which is a remarkable place, and Moses used public funds to make this elaborate recreational spot. So I imagine that for LaGuardia, he saw how efficient and how effective Moses was in getting funding and creating these types of projects. Yes, exactly. And and so LaGuardia, who took office on January 1st, 1934, hired Moses almost immediately as the city park commissioner and and even bowed to Moses's, you know, various demands that he made. Like, for example, that he merge all of the other borough parks commissioners into this one title that he would take on, fire all the other ones, um, and that he also be allowed to keep his Long Island projects, and that he would be put in charge of the Triborough Bridge project, which had been idling for lack of funding. And we'll talk a bit about the particulars of the Triborough Bridge Project here in a second, but just to underscore that Moses here is about reform Mm -hmm. and that he can't stand Tammany Hall and their excesses and their corruption. Yeah, he hated all kinds of inefficiencies. You know, corruption was an inefficiency. It was the the inefficient (laughs) use of money. So this made him especially appealing then to New Yorkers in Washington who were holding, you know, the federal purse strings because they had billions of dollars to hand out for these federal projects, but they were really afraid of graft and corruption. And and other cities did face that sort of 
problematic leadership. But here in New York, LaGuardia and Moses were really able to to run a very tight, clean operation and in return get a lot of money because they also were able to get a lot of publicity for these federally funded projects, which is also what the administrators wanted. They wanted to get tangible, quick results. They wanted parks and playgrounds and pools and bridges and airports, you know, thousands of structures and spaces spiffed up or constructed and thousands of people employed in a way that that the whole nation could look at and see and appreciate. And do you appreciate the fact that you just called the a New York City government clean and efficient? I mean, that's almost a, those are those are phrases you would almost never use in the history of New York City up to that time. And, and to be clear, there were of course inefficiencies and corruption. I'm referring to LaGuardia and Moses's shepherding of public funds mm-hmm. as clean and, you know, largely without corruption. Yes. So how exactly did Moses restore order here? Because it was a huge mess. Yeah. Well, according to the book American Made by Nick Taylor, the author tells the story of late 1933, before Moses had officially accepted um, LaGuardia's offer, because LaGuardia hadn't been sworn in yet, Moses had spied on some of the thousands of CWA, which was um, an earlier program, workers who were assigned to Parks jobs in the city. Uh, and he was he was really concerned by what he had found. He'd seen gross mismanagement. He saw workers who were slacking on the job. He, there wasn't really much oversight of the projects. So when he took over the Parks Department in January of 34, he hired foremen who they called ramrods to make sure that jobs were getting done right and to really push through these jobs with a higher work standard. So in essence, he hired enforcers, <laughs> yes. which I'm sure I'm sure they were very effective and it sounds slightly frightening, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But what were these jobs specifically? Like who was coming up with these particular plans? Well, this was another Moses innovation because from the, the headquarters of the Parks Department at the Arsenal in Central Park, right there, you know, by the, by the zoo. Mm-hmm. Moses hired 600 out-of-work engineers and architects to draw up plans for all kinds of parks projects. And and he expected them to work these very long, grueling 14-hour days just to crank out enough plans to keep the money flowing from Washington to the New York City Parks Department. They were super efficient. I mean, by that spring, when he had just been in for a couple months, they'd already tackled 1,700 projects, including revamping every park in the city. <laughs> Talk about his first 100 days. They're <laughs> almost as equatable as uh, FDRs. That's right. And the architects and engineers kept it up, you know, into the WPA program then that launched in 1935 and the continuation of those other New Deal programs. I mean, these these architects just kept drafting plans, submitting them to the federal administrators for funding. Remember that New York was competing with cities all across the country, mm-hmm. but those cities didn't have Robert Moses. According to American Made, quote, although the army engineers in Washington who scrutinized applications found many that had to be returned, New York's were consistently in order. Between Moses and Mayor LaGuardia, who had firehouses, police stations, and public housing in mind, among the many projects to be built with WPA labor, New York accounted for more than a tenth of applications that were working their way through the system. The city had rented an apartment in Washington for LaGuardia to use, and he did so frequently. And then the book talks about LaGuardia's relationship with Roosevelt, and Roosevelt had quipped, quote, he comes to Washington and tells me a sad story, Roosevelt said. The tears run down my cheeks, and the tears run down his cheeks. And the first thing I know, he's wangled another $50 million. <laughs> wow. So one-seventh of this entire WPA budget, the entire budget, mm-hmm. one-seventh of this went to New York City? That's right. It was such a large percentage uh, that New York actually got its own special status as the 49th state 
in the WP administration. There, there were 48 states at the time. So New York got its own WPA administrative office um, and its own administrator. How exactly did Moses receive these funds and then allocate them for projects? Remember that the WPA primarily was a jobs program, right? The federal funds were primarily used to hire men and women to staff these projects. So Moses and the other city planners would apply to the WPA and then mostly get workers for their projects. The system had all kinds of kinks that needed to be worked out because there was such massive unemployment. Mm -hmm. You know, how did you get the right kind of people assigned to the right kind of jobs? There were all kinds of crazy stories, especially early on, about people with the wrong skill sets being assigned to the wrong jobs, you know, grocers who were laying asphalt in Queens and so forth. But those would largely get worked out. When we say Moses is getting this money, what mm-hmm. is actually happening is it's mostly paying for the labor through the WPA. In in the case of the WPA, yes. Yeah, okay. But Moses would also, for other projects like the Triborough Bridge, use PWA, which was larger financing for big infrastructure projects. Mm-hmm. But when we're talking about immediately putting people back to work in the parks and so on, that's mostly people coming through the WPA. Mm-hmm. And of the budgets that would be approved from D.C., only about 25% of the budget could be used for supplies and for equipment and for management and that sort of thing. And of the people then who would be hired by the WPA office in New York, uh, 95% of them had to be unemployed New Yorkers, which also made it a little somewhat debasing for some of the workers Mm -hmm. because they basically... They had to go on welfare and be classified as in need of relief in order to get these jobs. So people complained about that. And how many people was the New York office allowed to hire for these projects? Well, initially, about 100,000 people were approved to be hired by the WPA office in New York and then sent to these projects. But by the height of the program, in February of 1936, 246,000 New Yorkers would be employed by the WPA. And to be clear, the city is actually putting up some of the money too. I think all of these New Deal programs, you know, the city would have to put some skin in the game as well. And so did Robert Moses really allow the WPA to hire employees for him and for his projects? The answer is yes at the beginning, uh, but he couldn't accept that somebody else, that the WPA commissioner in New York, would be in charge of hiring and firing the people who would be under his management. Mm -hmm. And in the end, he would work out a special agreement uh, with the WPA office, which would allow him to sort of settle his own labor issues. But it irked him till, till the end. And he was also irked that he would have to display a WPA sign on these projects. He thought that it was kind of like propaganda for the federal government. Did he want his face? A picture of his face on everything? (laughs) What? (laughs) I think he just, he wanted these projects to reflect the city, not like federal, Uh federal government largesse, you know? But he would also use other programs like the PWA, which allowed for federal grants and federal loans and allow him to hire and work with whoever he wanted to work with. So, Tom, we've sort of talked around these projects. I think it's time to visit a few of them. Let's do. So let's begin our tour of New Deal projects. And by the way, I should say there's there's hundreds, there's thousands of them. So we're not going, we're not going to even really talk about most of them in any considerable way. And frankly, let's be honest, a lot of them are roads and sewers. Water mains. Water mains. That aren't that fun to to really point out here. Important. So, but in, very, very, perhaps more important. But we're actually going to start next to the water here for my first example. At a little beach oasis in eastern Bronx, tucked away in Pelham Bay Park. And it's a place called Orchard Beach. So, Tom, I, too, am reaching for the New York Daily News. <laughs> uh, an issue of July 26, 1936. Reporting on this beach's dedication, okay? The headline, Ex-Foes Pass Posies at New Beach Rights. 
Quote, Orchard Beach, the Jones Beach of the Bronx, was dedicated yesterday by city and federal officials who have not always been friendly, but yesterday tossed bouquets to one another. Parks Commissioner Robert Moses, who presided at the ceremony, mentioned the criticisms he suffered when he launched the project. That started the verbal floral tributes. Quote, I'm amused at Mr. Moses's talk of criticism, said Mayor LaGuardia. Quote, I get all his protests plus those he aims at me. <laughs> then LaGuardia called Moses, quote, the greatest engineer in the country, unquote. I mean, part of me is sort of is honestly a little disappointed that Robert Moses wasn't literally tossing a bouquet. I thought that that's where you were going with that. But um, I'm glad that they made up in time for the yes. dedication. And Orchard Beach was to be one of the greatest examples of a comprehensive imagining of public space. Okay, so the whole area was reinvented, almost created from scratch, okay? It was before this it was a little sandbar with a few hundred bungalows. Well, he came through, filled it with landfill, transforming it into a crescent-shaped beach 6,000 feet long with imported sand and of course a beautiful bathhouse. In fact, the New York Times describes the Orchard Beach bathhouse, quote, "worthy of Mussolini." <laughs> <laughs> a vast spare arcade dwarfing the human figure overlooking Long Island Sound in the Bronx. It also has a humanistic side as an ennobling public work of democratic ambition. Worthy of Mussolini. <laughs> um, but when, when you say that Moses has transformed this, maybe more accurately we should say that thousands of WPA laborers had transformed the speech. Oh, sure. I mean, Moses wasn't down there with a trowel. That's for sure. Like, <laughs> building things. He was down there with a growl. A gr growl, not a trowel. <laughs> you know, a lot of this was just sort of self-promotion because it needed to be publicized that they were spending this money effectively. But in fact, the beach wouldn't even open until 1937. It wasn't open yet. The beach mm. house wasn't even open until the following year. Because, of course, Moses had created Jones Beach, Jones Beach State Park, he considered these beach projects, like Orchard Beach and down at Rockaway Beach as well, Jacob Reese Beach is also a federally funded project here, he considered these the jewels in his growing portfolio of, of projects. And I start here at Orchard Beach because it underscores the massive scale of projects that Moses was envisioning, okay? His architects were not even thinking as large as he was. According to, and our first quote from Robert Caros, the power broker, quote, Moses told them, the architects, to worry only about the plans. He would worry about getting the money for them. So Moses had these great dreams for New York and dreams that the federal government would be able to fund it. I mean, and as we would see later in his career, I think to a more sinister degree, because we're not getting too negative on Robert Moses in this no. in this episode, but he was already rewriting the map of New York City. He was thinking, how can I make this a better place for New Yorkers according to my vision? And those are just the beaches, just one part of the parks department. Yes, the actual neighborhood parks themselves, all of these were forever changed by Moses and these programs. They had you know, already received some state funds you know, a few years earlier to start the renovation and restoring of some pre-existing parks. But Moses, believe it or not, and quite surprising, Moses practically reinvented the municipal playground in New York. Which are today so central. Children's playgrounds are so central to our idea of a park. Right. I mean, it's just, it's part and parcel. Park and parcel of it. Park and parcel. Are. Yes, there but, you go. But that actually wasn't the case in 1930. I mean, there were like a lot of playgrounds in New York by this time, but they were specifically built in neighborhoods where there was an actual demand. But most parks did not naturally include a playground in their blueprints. And by playground, you mean a dedicated 
area for children to play and, and to swing and teeter-totter and stuff. Yeah, 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 monkey bars and that type of thing. I'm going to quote directly from the official website of the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation, because they say this very well, and quite honestly, it's, it's still kind of breathtaking to imagine this. Quote, During Moses' tenure, the number of playgrounds in the city grew from 119 to 777. Many of these facilities were built during the Depression through federal relief programs like the Works Progress Administration. It was during this period that Parks Department designers created the familiar details that give traditional playgrounds the character they retain today. The combination of the simple brick comfort station, the wood and concrete park bench, the wire mesh trash basket, croquet wicket fences around lawn areas, and birdbath water fountains were a design ensemble launched in the 1930s. Other typical features of these playgrounds included large asphalted areas adorned with sandboxes, seesaws, metallic jungle gyms, and monkey bars, swing sets, and slides. Wow. All of these items that together kind of make that iconic New York City playground Mm -hmm. came from this period that Robert Moses led. And so many of those things were then crafted by WPA artisans and and playgrounds built by WPA laborers. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I'm not just talking little neighborhood parks here. Almost all of the major large parks were transformed uh, with these programs. Bryant Park was completely rebuilt with New Deal Mm -hmm. money. He even turned to those kind of shaggy menageries in Central Park and Prospect Park and then turned them into proper zoos during the 1930s. Moses left no park untouched or left no park unimproved. And then that's just the pre-existing parks, Tom. By 1936, okay, now with this WPA money, Moses could even create parks from whatever patch of land he could acquire. So now he's manufacturing new parks. And, you know, I would just like to say that when you walk past a playground today, you know how there's always a dedication plaque. Mm -hmm. Check it out. Look at it with new eyes because I have a feeling that the date that you will see on that plaque will be in the 1930s. In this period, you'll be able to kind of identify is this one of the early New Deal uh, playgrounds or a later one under WPA. And of course, you'll probably see Robert Moses's name. But you won't, of course, see the name of the hundreds of people who actually worked on creating that playground in that spot. Moses's presence is so large in this story and it was large back then like he was the face of these improvements but it often obscures the other talented and civic-minded people that were closely involved with individual projects throughout the city i mean as you can imagine many of these projects were just being minimally overseen by Moses. And really other people were taking charge, such as the Parks Department architect Imar Embury, who sometimes gets lost in the story. It was he was actually doing a lot of the day-to-day supervision on both of the zoos and a lot of the bigger parks projects, right? So it's not mm. it's Moses out front, but there is an army behind him that's also helping to improve New York. Yes, and this army of tens of thousands of workers who were actually building these parks. Um, But to be fair, you know, they also benefited from the leadership of Robert Moses. Yeah, and I would even add to that that there's one aspect of city construction in the 1930s that is very much under Moses's wing, is very much has that Moses fingerprint in it. And that is, of course, the construction of New York City swimming pools. And Moses did love his pools. He was a swimmer. He was a big swimmer, an avid swimmer. Uh, remember I mentioned Frances Perkins a while back in the show, the FDR's mm-hmm. Department of Labor? Well, she was a friend of Moses, and she once said, quote, Moses was a wonderful swimmer. I never saw a man who could swim so long, so easily, so far with such confidence and security. Which is just a beautiful metaphor, you know, for... <laughs> For the strength that Moses exhibited throughout his entire career. (laughs) New York City was built upon Robert Moses's breaststroke. He made great strides. He did, Tom. He made great strides 
in the city of New York. <laughs> Eleven swimming pools were opened just in the summer of 1936 alone, and in all five boroughs. And these are really some great pieces of neighborhood architecture. These were an evolution of the bathhouse. You know, New York had bathhouses at the turn of the century, which has served a more sanitary purpose in the days when apartments didn't have running water. People didn't have bathtubs, right? Mm-hmm. But by the 1930s, these pools these pools were intended for recreational use. Oh, sure, yeah. You weren't taking a bath in a pool. Uh, No, no, no. And these were, you know, mostly outdoor venues and were designed with very modern innovations. For instance, one of my favorite swimming pools, although I don't swim, I still love to go to the Astoria Swimming Pool, which Mm. opened on July 2nd, 1936. Tom, two days after the swimming pool opened... They got all the kids out of the pool because the U.S. Olympic swimming and diving trials were held here. Uh, well, it is a magnificent structure, and the yards around it, I mean, just just strolling around the Astoria pool is really breathtaking. I, th- I think it's one of the most beautiful civic structures created in America in the 1930s. So we have kind of gone in deep here with how the New Deal projects worked in New York City, and you've introduced us to to various Parks Department projects. Uh-huh. I wanted to just briefly touch on some of the larger projects, though, that were also going on, uh-huh. um, and that could have only been happening because of funds that were coming from the New Deal. So just consider this, Greg. The Triborough Bridge started construction in 1929, 1930, It stopped because of the Depression. It was revived under Moses in 1934 and then opened on July 11th, 1936, right around the same time as the Astoria Pool. And in sight of the Astoria Pool, in fact. (laughs) That's very close. And the bridge was completed with $44 million in loans and grants from the New Deal, from the RFC and the Public Works Administration. Meanwhile, across town, the Lincoln Tunnel which had also begun in the 1920s, also stopped because of the Depression and funding, and then resumed in 1933 with a $37 million loan to the Port Authority from the Public Works Administration. That opened the next year in 1937. And then meanwhile, at the same time, the Queens Midtown Tunnel, that was under construction at the same time uh, from 1936 to 1940, the city got $58 million from, from the feds to, to construct that. All of that is happening in the mid to late 1930s. And also at the same time from 1937 to 39, LaGuardia Airport was being constructed with massive assistance from the WPA. There were about 20,000 WPA workers who contributed to constructing LaGuardia Airport and the runways and the grounds. So much activity going on here in just these few years. Mm -hmm. It's really amazing. And so many projects being constructed. So many projects that we still use today. Including bridges and their approaches Mm -hmm. and, of course, Mm -hmm. parkways Mm -hmm. in the region as well. All of these relying on this federal assistance. Yeah, often relying upon these big grants and loans from the Public Works Administration, but also many of them using workers from the Works Progress Administration. Now, we're nearing the end of part one here, but I just want to focus a little bit more here on the very innovative way that Moses funded the Triborough Bridge Project. The Triborough Bridge is a collection of three bridges that links Queens, Manhattan, and the Bronx. And had been a project that was started in the late 20s, and then Moses took over the management, the running of it, in 1934 under LaGuardia. The year before, in 33, Moses, working as the head of the New York State Emergency Public Works Commission, had set up the Triborough Bridge Authority. And Moses had developed an alternative method for generating revenues. It's complicated. We're obviously not going to go too deep into it. But the authority, the Triborough Bridge Authority, was an independent 
public benefit corporation, which meant that it could actually sell its own bonds and raise cash. It would then apply for and get a huge loan from the Public Works Administration, and then it would sell bonds that would help finance the loan that it took from the federal government. And then once the bridge opened, it would charge tolls to pay off the debt that it had incurred from the loans from the federal government. Hmm. Got that? Yeah. So in the end, how much did the Triborough Bridge cost? The whole project, you know, cost about $60 million, which is about a billion dollars today, making it one of the largest New Deal projects ever. Of that $60 million, the city spent about a quarter of it, about $16 million. And the PWA gave $44 million, mostly in loans, and mostly by buying those those bonds that the Triborough Bridge Authority had issued. And the thing about the Triborough Bridge, which is a really incredible innovation for Moses, is that those those tolls, of course, were making the bridge, were not just paying back all those loans, but then they made the bridge profitable. They made the authority, yet the Triborough Bridge Authority profitable, and they would then buy their own bonds back. They would reissue them, they'd refinance them. But pretty soon, the Triborough Bridge Authority would be generating lots and lots of money, and they'd be able then to finance other great infrastructure projects, including tunnels and other roadways and many other bridges, including the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. So there is a line, then a direct line between Robert Moses and New Deal funding in the 1930s and the Verrazano Narrows Bridge decades later. And we're going to leave the story of Robert Moses right there. For more information, we have a whole show on his life and legacy deep in our back catalog. Uh, And we're going to leave his story right here because in part two, we're going to focus on another aspect of this federal assistance, another aspect of the Works Progress Administration called the Federal Project Number One. In part two, we will be exploring the arts of the New Deal. So join us next week for part two. Visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for photos, maps, and illustrations of these and other New Deal projects that took place in New York City. We want to give a special shout out to this extraordinary website called The Living New Deal, which is just focusing on like the legacy of the New Deal in the United States. But it is exhaustively researched and a really fun afternoon can be had just digging through it and looking up New Deal projects across the country. It really is extraordinary. So check out that website, livingnewdeal.org. We'd like to extend a hearty thank you, I guess, to our New Deal, (laughs) (laughs) or to those who support us on Patreon.com, where for just a small contribution each month, you help us keep the show up and running, and you get a lot of fun extra audio stuff to boot. You really are kind of our WPA. Um, You keep Greg and I at work and, and employed, so... Thank you so much. I I guess we would be part of federal project number one, uh, technically, which we'll talk about next week. You're all a lot more pleasant to work with than perhaps Robert Moses was, but who knows? (laughs) And we want to, I want to extend a very special thank you to Ann M and Russ L from Manhattan, Rachel F from Connecticut, and additional thank yous to Eric S, Carrie H, Stephen Z, Samantha G, Kenneth B, and to Paul M. You can join these extraordinary individuals uh, by heading over to patreon.com slash boweryboys. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash boweryboys. We would not be able to produce this show without your support. So thank you so much. And we'll see you next week for part two of our look at New York City and the New Deal. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.
Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.